Welcome to the first video session of our church history class here at Grace Community Church. As we have told you before, we will be having panel discussions, and the panel is a small one today. Uh, Neil Manning and myself will be leading this class today. Uh, as we stated last time, we cannot truly know or understand ourselves and what we believe without knowing the past. Uh, we mentioned the quote by Bernard of Chartres in the 12th century, early in the 12th century, we are only dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, Justo Gonzalez points this out in our textbook. When we read, the just shall live by faith, Martin Luther is whispering in our ears, telling us how to interpret our text. When we hear Christ died for our sins, Anselm of Canterbury sits next to us in church, even though we have no idea who Anselm is. We hope to change that this semester, uh, Neil, in our, our class. Uh, you laid out so well the foundations of, uh, that were laid for the coming of Christ. The times in which Christ came were perfect. God told us they were perfect, and that's all we need to know. But when we understand how the Greek language was so widely used, the Koine Greek, the common Greek <coughs> language, and when we <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> understand <coughs> how wonderful the Roman road system, much akin to our inter interstate system here in America, that facilitated travel and trade and the movement of ideas, we see it was perfect timing. Uh, so, Neil, let me ask you... Uh, right off the beginning uh, today, in that time after Christ came and the apostles fulfilled the commission that Jesus gave them to, to begin spreading the gospel, what roles uh, did the apostles play in the church itself? Not just in spreading the gospel, but within the church. Sure. Um, well, we can actually see from Scripture that uh, John and Peter, they referred to themselves as Elders, they didn't see themselves as above anyone else, um, but rather they were shepherds like the other bishops were shepherds of, of the flocks. Although everyone understood that the apostles, when they taught, they were teaching the very word of God, and that's that's what they handed down to us. Just like uh, Christ told them that the Spirit would give them remembrance of all truth, um, and, and that's what they passed on to the churches through. Their in-person speaking as well as their, their letters. I don't suppose the role that the apostles played can be overstated uh, in the formation of the church and church doctrine. What we believe that Jesus was teaching, we understand because the apostles gave us the scripture. But the written scriptures were not in place. We'll be talking a great deal next week about how... Uh, the Bible came into uh, our possession. And it took a long time, much longer than most people expect. So the apostles had uh, quite a role in teaching uh, the church. What happened after the last apostle died? Right. I mean, really, there's no replacement for the apostles. Um, even when we consider apostolic succession, what they were doing is, is passing along the authority uh, to teach, not to reveal new new scripture, new revelations. Um, so, you know, what did the church look to? And it was 
it was the tradition, you know, even Paul mentions, I think it's Colossians, the traditions that he taught them. But how, in what form did they have a tradition? It was in the writing. It was in their letters. It was in the Gospels that uh, were penned either by the apostles or under the, the apostles' guidance. So uh, even the early church, even as early as Clement of Rome, who um, was in the, the later years of the first century, the first century marked himself separate from the apostles. He said, we are not apostles. There are no more apostles. And from those early decades after the, the final apostles lived, they, they looked immediately to their writings. The Old Testament was the basis, was the base already present, and in what they had, of course, the circulation took time between all the letters from the different cities to get around to the other cities. But they immediately looked to the, the writings of the apostles. So uh, the teaching, if, if a, a, a prophet, say, uh, one who functioned much like a prophet in the second century, mm -hmm. someone who would speak prophetically, if he said, here is new information from the Lord, it would be rejected because he's not an apostle. Uh, I think it would be good to remember what the requirements were for being an apostle. Uh, one had to be... Uh, not only acquainted with Jesus, but had to be a part of his ministry. They had to have seen him and known him during his ministry time. The one exception, of course, being the Apostle Paul, who was one born out of time, he says. Um, also, the apostles had to be specifically appointed by Jesus to be such. And Paul, we know, received a very specific calling uh, on the road to Damascus. Um, when we think about uh, the, the, the teachings of the early church, we, we hear about the Apostles' Creed. We're going to look at that Apostles' Creed at the end of our session today. But uh, it, it was not written by the Apostles, was it? <laughs> no, uh, a lot of the creeds were written with the name of the person that it most reflected. The Athanasian Creed was not written by Athanasius. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. But it was written as a summary reflection of what the Apostles taught. And so, when we come to the Apostles' Creed, uh, even though it, it, it first surfaced somewhere in the middle of the second century, um, we'll see that they had a pretty good grasp on the Trinity. Now, I've been saying from the pulpit in, in our first session that the that the Trinity was not articulated fully until somewhere in the uh, uh, early 4th century, actually the late 4th century, before right. it was completely uh, it wrapped in the package that we uh, enjoy today. But uh, they had a good understanding all along. Um, let's Before we talk about the heresies and the ways that uh, the early church began to develop doctrine in response to heresies. Let's talk about that early church itself. How did the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 in Jerusalem affect the early church? I don't think it can be overstated. Um, it was a huge, pivotal point, not only for Judaism, but for Christianity as well. I mean, for the Jews, it, it essentially ended Judaism as a religion. They had to invent another way 
to get to God. And of course, without the Son, they are not reaching God. But they had to invent a totally different religion. For the Christians, um, I, I think they saw it as a vindication of Christ because it was a fulfillment of His, his prophecy, of His judgment on, on the city, the people who rejected Him. And um, the historian Josephus recounting the Jewish wars in the, in the um, siege of Jerusalem when the Romans finally took it and destroyed the city, um, he stated that there was probably not a single Christian to be found in the city. And I think that was because they listened to Jesus' prophecy and, and when they saw the army surrounding the city, they got out of town. And once they left, I, I don't think they had a very long time to enjoy this sense of vindication because they were no longer admitted in, into the, the synagogues. You know, up until that point, that was Paul's motif, that he would go into the synagogue first and preach to the Jews before they kicked him out. And then from, from 70 onward, they're not allowed. They're seen as a completely different religion, not just a sect of Judaism, but as a completely different religion, different faith system. Which uh, radically impacted their status with Rome as well, not only with Jerusalem, but also with Rome. You mentioned last week about the diaspora and how the Christians were dispersed, actually Jews were dispersed first, and they set up synagogues, they set up meeting places, worship places in the cities around all over the Roman Empire, uh, the Babylonian Empire, then the Roman Greek and Roman Empires. Uh, <clears throat> That was, as you said, Paul's uh, plan of attack. He would go into a synagogue and preach the gospel. Not only were there Jews in these synagogues, there were a number of what we call righteous Gentiles, those who had converted <clears throat> to Judaism. Uh, the, 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 the moral decay in the empire uh, was uh, an offense to many people, and they uh, were drawn, attracted to the moralism that was found in Judaism. So when Paul went in and said morality is not enough, but Jesus is the answer, a number of these Gentiles responded to the gospel, which, of course, made the Jews jealous. Uh, and, and, and then after the destruction of the temple, and the Jews said now the synagogue is not only a meeting place, it is the primary meeting place. Christians were no longer permitted in the synagogues, and so that sent them uh, from... a a place where they had found fertile, where the gospel had found fertile ground. Um, so, how were Christians viewed in the Greco-Roman world in those early days? Not very well, I don't think. Um, uh, again, in the in the early years, even while the apostles were still around, um, Rome didn't see a difference. They thought it was just another sect of Judaism, and it was primarily the Jews that, that persecuted Christians because they didn't want anything to do with who they thought was a false Messiah. Uh, afterward, then Rome saw them as a completely different faith group. And um, typically, and we get this even from the writings of Roman governors that, uh, and, and philosophers too, that they were, the faith of Christianity was passed along through slaves, through women, you know, through people that the upper class society would not have anything to do with. So they thought that it was a very base religion, um, a very silly one because they worshipped one invisible God rather than many gods that you can see. 
Um, and because of the rumors of their church meetings, what went on and what was not allowed to be seen by the outside world, these rumors took on a, a life of their own, and people ended up hating the Christians because they thought they were incestuous or, or cannibals you know, because they're eating the flesh and the blood. But we see it's really the bread and the wine. Um, so it, it went from, from bad to worse. Christians, uh, in fact, served as scapegoats many times when bad things happened. There was a, um, a North African proverb, if God doesn't send the rain, blame it on the Christians. If the Nile floods, blame it on the Christians. Nero, uh, who was suspected of arson in Rome, found the Christians a convenient group to blame. <clears throat> so that's when persecution began in earnest uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, you've already mentioned the fact that polytheistic people didn't like the idea of one God, especially a God who was invisible, so therefore Christians were known as atheists. Another thing, uh, Christians refused to participate in a number of the social events because they were so closely connected with paganism. Uh, and, and, and pagan worship. And so consequently the people were both offended and no doubt convicted by the purity of the Christians and so they persecuted them. <clears throat> so what was the impact of persecution on the early church? Death. <laughs> um, for yeah. some. For some, right. For individuals, but what about the church as a whole? Church as a whole, Rome pretty much didn't care said, as long as people didn't turn them in. If they were turned in as a menace to society, then they were, they were prosecuted as such. Um, so we see throughout the empire uh, only pockets of, of persecution and martyrdom, um, but there was no empire-wide legal force to, to destroy them early on. Some of the believers offered themselves for martyrdom. Sometimes that backfired. They would yeah. uh, become afraid at the moment of martyrdom. Uh, others, like Polycarp, initially hid from the uh, officials who sought to arrest him and execute him. But eventually he said, no, if this is what my Lord has called me to, this is what I'll do. Uh, Tertullian of Carthage said... The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, persecution served to grow the church in that people admired uh, those who would give their lives for something that they that, that, that seemingly didn't need to be done. They didn't need to sacrifice. All they had to do was to sacrifice to Caesar. They go ahead and sacrifice to your Jesus. But Christians believe, no, there's only one Lord, <clears throat> that is Jesus, and we cannot uh, offer sacrifices to anyone except for him. So persecution had um, a, a cleansing effect on the church. Um, but it's, it's interesting as we, over these first few video sessions, we're going to be looking at more themes than we are uh, a chronological treatment of this uh, early church in these first two to three centuries. Well, uh, we've talked about the challenges to the church uh, 
from without. Now we want to talk about challenges from within. By the way, just a, a housekeeping note, uh, since we're doing these in segments, we won't always be in the same place or even have the same clothes on as we uh, put together one entire session. Um, Neil, I want us to, to talk a little bit about the challenges from within the church. Uh, it, from the earliest days, Paul showed a great deal of tolerance for those who maybe had different methods than he had for sharing the gospel. But he had no tolerance at all for false teaching. None at all. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons Paul gets uh, such a reputation as being such a harsh individual. He was harsh when it came to those who were perverting the gospel, perverting the truth of the gospel. Uh, in, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about heresies regarding the Trinity. Uh, but this morning, I want us to look at a few heresies from within the church, or that threaten the church from within. Um, and, and these were often impacted by philosophy in the day. Again, next week we're going to talk about philosophy in, in, in more detail, but just give us a little overview of how philosophy impacted the way the church thought about Scripture, or some in the church thought about Scripture. Yeah, and, and you bring up the point that... Um Dangers from within are often more dangerous than those persecutions that come from without. Um, some of which because it's unseen, some of which because it works through the mind rather than on the outside of our body, and uh, we can't tell how much it has influenced us until usually it's too late. And some of those early philosophies that meshed morphed into superficial Christianity um, did not start with the start of Christianity. It started even earlier with um, Greek philosophy like uh, Plato and, and his philosophies. Aristotle influenced several theologians actually. And uh, some of the main ones that we see here is Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a non-Christian belief system but then when people come into the church they want to, here's the word of the day, syncretize. It's syncretism where they want to blend um, the philosophies and beliefs of the world with uh, the faith and beliefs of, of Christ. And they, what they end up with is not Christianity. Gnosticism, if we think about it, the word gnosis comes from knowledge. There's a secret knowledge that is not plain for everybody who can pick up the Bible and read it, but is only available to those who are initiated into uh, the, the certain sect. And what are those knowledge? Well, they, they believe in some sort of dualism. That the spirit world is good, but the physical world is bad. And here we are, we're stuck in, we have bodies, but we're, we're trying to escape our bodies and our salvation was, was to be escaped from the body and into the, the spirit. But in scripture, we don't see that. We see in the beginning when God created everything, he created it very good. And when he comes to redeem everything, he's going to redeem the body and the material world as much as he's going to redeem our spiritual side. And when <clears throat> Christians um, started to blend these ideas together, they really hurt themselves because they, they took Christ out of the center. It, it's no longer the same God of the Bible. You think of Marcion. And I think Marcionism is one of those heresies that we really want to pay attention to because um, 
he had the same mentality of a lot of people today. That there was a dichotomy of, oh, the God of the Old Testament is not the same God who was the father of Jesus. Marcion is one of those uh, guys we're going to think about in our next uh, segment. Docetism was really the, uh, the, the church heresy mm-hmm. that was sort of connected with Gnosticism. Um, it, it was influenced a great deal more by Plato, as you've already uh, alluded to, than Paul. They, docetism uh, comes from a word that means to seem or to appear, as in Christ seemed to be good. Just like you, you said, the idea was that the spirit is good, the spirit world is good, the material is evil. Um, so Jesus could not have been real. He had to be a spirit. He just seemed to be a human. Uh, so uh, this budding heresy, Gnosticism, a lot of people want to look at the New Testament letters, some of the New Testament letters, particularly Colossians and 1 John, and say these were directed toward Gnosticism. Probably not. Gnosticism didn't, wasn't in full bloom until middle of the second century. Uh, but... No doubt, docetism may have already been uh, in play when John wrote, and I do just want to read the, the opening lines of 1 John, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched. So the, the Apostle John was saying, no, Jesus didn't seem to be. It's not like our hand went right through him when we touched. We touched him. He was physical. That which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we proclaim Jesus today. We didn't touch Him, but we believe He was real because of the witness of the apostles. Fully human, um, physical in His resurrection. And later, John actually says, He who denies that Christ has come in the flesh, he it is who is anti-Christ. And, and that is the very same error that we see in, I believe, Serenthus is one of the main docetists who influenced the early church at the, the end of the first century, that he claimed that Jesus was a spirit. He only appeared in physical form, but that same conversation can be held today if Jesus only raised spiritually. What does that say for the Christian faith? What does it say for our faith if, if his body is still in the grave? Well, that was actually a, a heresy that, that, that Paul dealt with as well uh, in the New Testament letters. Uh, and those who uh, believed that Jesus had been raised only spiritually, even if they believed that he had a body, that the resurrection was only spiritual, deny not only his resurrection, but our resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes that argument. And oddly enough, it is uh, sort of a health and wealth gospel, which certainly is, is in full, on full display today. Not in the same way that it was on display 20 years ago. But nonetheless, if you believe God 
if you have enough faith, God will heal all of your diseases, all of your physical ailments. He will provide money for you. You're a child of the King. After all, you live the resurrected life. Uh, again, that health and wealth gospel today would not correspond one-to-one -one with the health and wealth gospel of the first century. But when you start thinking about the spiritual, when you elevate the spiritual to the place that the, that the physical is meaningless, right. that this is just something that we're enduring, then you get to danger. Well, you've already mentioned Gnosticism. You could, you, you could uh, be docetic in your Christianity. You could be a docetist. You could believe that Christ was seen to be and that he was spirit without being all the way Gnostic. But if you were Gnostic, you were of necessity a docetist. Um, Gnostics believe that the ultimate creator didn't intend for us to be here. There were a series of gods, and one of the lesser gods, I, I think he was God number 41, I, I think. The Demiurge is his name. Uh, made a huge mistake, and I could be wrong about that. I'm, I'm speaking from memory, which is always a challenge. Um, but the Demiurge messed up and created the earth. So all human beings are, in a sense, spirits that are trapped in these bodies. And the goal, of course, is for the spirit to escape the body. That is not entirely unlike Plato, but it was taken to a, a far greater extent with the Gnostics. Um, the way that we escape that body is exactly as you've already mentioned. A teacher gives us special knowledge, or we have special knowledge, and you get this special knowledge from a particular teacher who will tell us how we can be freed from this um, this evil material existence that we know now. And so, since it is necessary uh, for us to know how, it was, it, it was necessary, therefore, for a transcendent being to be sent to show us the way. And that transcendent being, of course, was the Christ. The Christ. Not Jesus, but the Christ, who was that spirit being who came and appeared as Jesus. And there were different flavors as to whether or not he entered a, a Jesus who was a physical person or if he just appeared to be as a person. But if, if any of this sounds familiar, it's because this same heresy lives on today in the New Age movement, that we are trapped here and the only thing keeping you in bondage is your lack of knowledge. If you just know that you are a God, then you'll escape and you'll be saved into this this nothingness this universal mind but that is completely against biblical theology it is and, and you're right uh, it actually uh, all a good 10 years ago uh, Gnosticism was very much front and center and the thinking of a lot of people in America I'll get to that in uh, just a moment um, I, wanna, I do want to add this, though. Uh, Christ was said to have given his non-written teachings to some of his followers uh, who passed, and, and these teachings were passed on by Gnostic teachers. They wrote scriptures in time which, uh, according to the Gnostics, uh, the imperial church destroyed because they didn't want any competition with the real official uh, imperial religion, which was Christianity by the time Constantine had his say in it. Um, but 
what happened with those um, texts is that a handful of them survived. And in 1945, there was a discovery of the Nag Hammadi Gospels in Egypt. Uh, and so contemporary writers uh, such as uh, Elaine Pagels and then UNC professor, University of North Carolina professor Bart Ehrman, with whom at least one of our own Grace Community Church members has done battle in class, have sought to revive Gnosticism. I remember about 10 years or so ago, 10 to 15 years ago, watching at Barnes & Noble, which used to be my favorite hangout, not as much now. I don't think it'll survive much longer because of these devices, but nonetheless, uh, I would go there and I watched the, the, the bookshelf on Gnosticism grow and grow and grow, and then it was reported that the Da Vinci Code, uh, which had become quite popular as a book, was now coming out as a movie, and Tom Hanks was the leading role, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, what is going to happen after this? It's being touted as the death knell of Christianity. A absolutely. Well, fortunately, yeah, really fortunately, the movie was a dud, and then I watched the section uh, go just like this, but we can expect a revival at any time of these Gnostic thoughts because the, the, the thoughts, uh, the seeds of which were sown all the way back to Plato constantly find fertile ground in the minds of intellectuals in particular because there's this pursuit of knowledge. You're right, it hits on with those intellectuals very much because in, you think back in history, and I think and Gonzales mentions it in the book about Marcus Aurelius, we think, you know, the, the movie Gladiator, he was the philosopher and very noble, and he was actually the Stoic. So he was a philosopher who took part in Platonic thought, and Stoics wanted to decrease the amount of emotional response to things. And whether it's Gnosticism or all these different flavors of philosophy, it's all man-centered. Like we want to achieve something, we want to do something for our salvation. And in fact, what it does is um, it sets them apart, sets Christians apart from that, that we can't do anything. And, and Marcus Aurelius even recognized that, and we would think as a high-thinking uh, emperor that he may be, he may be... Um, somewhat conciliatory to a noble faith like Christianity, but in fact he was one of the main ones who persecuted Christians and said, uh, I like the, the quote that uh, Gonzalez puts in there that um, Aurelius mentions that uh, it is a noble thing to give up one's body when it's necessary, unlike these Christians. Like uh, That really sets the Christians apart that we're able to not able, but willing through the Spirit to uh, to give up our bodies if necessary, if it means being faced with with um, the charge to deny Christ. We can't do that. Yes, uh, that the idea of the nobility of 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 giving up the body for a proper cause uh, was, as you have already alluded to, stoic in, in in thought, and that's the interesting thing about Gnostics. Most were rather stoic, saying that if the material is bad, then we need to discipline the body. Uh, and that was another appeal to people who lived in a very licentious day, where there was some discipline, some morality that was brought to bear by Gnosticism. Um, 
So some were ascetics, denying the flesh. Others were libertines or libertines, not worried about the body. Uh, because if it's evil and doomed to perish, why not just eat, drink, and be merry? For tomorrow uh, we die. Well, uh, we have talked about a couple of heresies that impacted the church from within because Gnosticism made its way into the church and was not only a threat to the early church. My church history professor in seminary said that it was the one heresy that almost got the church from a human perspective. Obviously, the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. But uh, it, 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 it was a danger and it was something that had to be met. It was also a danger actually to Western civilization because of the fact the idea that the body is evil uh, led to the thought that procreation was dirty, was ugly, uh, and, and, and Christians are oftentimes uh, affected by that as well, that kind of thinking, that um, sex in and of itself is wrong. It's beautiful in its God-ordained place. It's quite ugly outside of its God-ordained place, but it is beautiful in the place that God gave it. So Gnosticism has a lot to say, not only about how the early church thought, but how we think if we're not very careful. Uh, Aristotle had his say, as you mentioned, among theologians. This would be later, by and large. Plato had the say in the early years. Aristotle would have a say later in which the body was not thought of as evil, but was thought of as integrated with uh, the spirit and, and a good thing. And I think Christians would tend to agree that the body is good because God said it was good. Now it's fallen, it's broken, but it's going to be restored to what it was. Well, in this last segment, in, uh, we're going to talk about two more heresies in particular, uh, Marcionism and Montanism. And Montanism in particular is very much on display or a similar type heresy is on display today. So we're back for the final segment of class two. Of course, Neil, we found it necessary to change clothes during the last two sessions. There's so much work involved in these sessions. Uh, we were just talking about Gnosticism and the threat that it was not only to the church but to Western civilization. And one of the great champions of the church was a bishop of Lyon uh, in modern-day France named Irenaeus. You may have never heard that term before, but Irenaeus was a stout theologian. He had some things that we wouldn't necessarily agree with, but um, a, a, a great number of arguments against Gnosticism. But Irenaeus was first and foremost a pastor. I just wanted to read uh, a passage from one of Irenaeus' writings to give you just a little bit of, of an idea of the heart that a number of the theologians who fought against heresy had. If you are God's artifact, then wait for the hand of the master, which makes everything at the proper time. At the time proper for you who are being created... Offer him a soft and malleable heart. Then keep the shape in which the master molds you. Retain your moisture so that you do not harden and lose the imprint of his fingers. That's beautiful. That's, that's very pastoral. You share the heart of 
still being malleable to the, the touch of God. Well, uh, next class, we're going to give another quote from Irenaeus that was also pastoral, but was more along the line of fighting heresy. Mm. Today, we're focusing on some of the heresies of the early church. Uh, I'd say one of the distinct features of the early church was that there was this palpable anticipation of Christ's return. Uh, right from the earliest days, we've already referenced First uh, John. I want to read one more verse uh, from First John, chapter 2, verse 18. And then I want to get some of your thoughts, Neil, about a uh, heresy of the early church called Montanism. The Apostle John, uh, writing uh, to a, a church in Ephesus, said, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, those, those words are still good today. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't think probably enough about the second coming. There was a period of time when uh, the second coming was all the rage, so to speak, in the church. But lately, we don't think a lot about Jesus' return. Well, in the second century, um, people were getting a little restless. The natives <laughs> were getting restless, so to speak. So it was ripe for a man named Montanus to come along with some of his views about uh, the spirit's work in the world. Give us just a little overview of Montanism. Yeah, I mean, everyone at that point, even the apostles, were looking forward to a, a recent, a soon returning of Christ. So when time, maybe several decades now, have passed and uh, he has not physically returned, there was an atmosphere, a spirit of, of ripeness, as you were saying, that um, Montanus took advantage of, and that he didn't claim to be the second return of Christ. He actually claimed something very similar in a different fashion, that he was the promised one whom, in John, Jesus promised the apostles that he would send another comforter, another uh, of the same type of comforter. And Montanus said that he was that koinonia, that he was that... Um, comforter, not the Holy Spirit, but Him. And um, it's a very strange movement because, and this is a theme that we'll continue to see, is how some heresies and, and heretics, even though they're bad, they serve for the good of the church. God uses them both to benefit the church as well as we'll see some of those drawbacks. And what Montanus and some of his followers did that were good is they were led very regimented, disciplined lives with their, their physical bodies. Um, their lifestyle was very um, ascetic. They wanted to give away their riches. They wanted to regulate their, their diet. However, if you look at, say, Timothy and, and some of those other pastoral epistles, those are the very things that we're to look out for, that some forbid to eat certain things, forbidding to marry, um, asking for money, those are things that identified false teachers, not true teachers. And what um, the followers of Montanus wanted to see happen is uh, more revelation. Well, exactly. Uh, they wanted to see God doing a new thing. In fact, have you ever heard that hmm. phrase? God is doing a new thing. Right here, uh, right and, now. Right here, right now. And, and, and so uh, Montanus was actually claiming new revelation. Uh, let's give a definition of, uh, uh, of revelation. 
God reveals himself, theologians talk about God revealing himself both generally and specifically or specially. General revelation is... It's also called natural revelation. It's, it's the world around us. It's nature. It's general in the aspect that it's available for everyone to apprehend um, the godhood of God through his creative power. So that Romans tells us that when we see God in creation, that we are without excuse, without excuse. if we fail to respond to him. Uh, but we can't look at nature and know about Jesus. We have to have special revelation. Mm-hmm. And so God has revealed himself directly to mankind through Jesus and through the writings of Scripture. And the writers of Scripture God used to tell us who Jesus was. Um, Montanus was saying, uh, God is giving us new revelation. Now, we don't, don't believe that God has given any new general or excuse me special revelation since the writings of scripture were closed now we didn't know scripture in that day quite the same way we do now but in the next session uh, Sean is especially going to address this issue of how we got the scriptures and 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 certainly at that time at the time middle of the second century end of the second century people had an understanding of uh, of God's special revelation through the writings of the apostles. So um, we believe now, though, that God is continually showing us the truth of Scripture through illumination. So that when I look at the Scripture, I'm not saying, oh, let me show you what God revealed to me. It's fair to say this is what God showed me in His revelation. Or now I now understand this about God through the writers of Scripture. Uh, but yeah, Montanus took that too far. Right. There's a distinction between, as you're saying, revelation, what God has revealed and said and shown us, and illumination, what he allows us to understand within what he has already revealed in, in the writings. And yeah, and, and Montanus wanted to not do away with Scripture. He wanted to just continue with God's special revelation. And, of course, it was through him and, and his workers um, they did. They wanted to do signs, and want, they wanted to speak in tongues. They wanted to show God's power was working through them. Um, so it was a very charismatic sort of movement where they uh, got into people's emotions and tapped into what they, I think, what they wanted to hear from God rather than what God has already said. Now that's not to say that all charismatics today would be. Montanist in the way that they no. understand God. But there is a danger when you start talking about God revealing new truth. Uh, because the yeah. truth that we need is in Scripture. And this really hits home for us today because there are individuals, there are churches, there are movements in the church at large today that would have us believe or want us to seek out new revelation not new application, not new illumination, but new revelation from God, as if God is speaking some, something new, some new universal truth to us, to me. And uh, we don't see that even from the early church fathers, even from their writings, we understand that they rely, their authority was the writings of the apostles. Because if we look to Jesus, he says to the twelve that he would, the Spirit would lead them into all truth, 
and that he then prayed for us, not only for these 12, but those who would believe in him through the words of those 12 apostles. And even from very early on, um, uh, some of the early fathers made that clear in their writings. Uh, we, we have talked about how much of a challenge it was for these early followers of Jesus to understand things that seemed so clear to us and so simple to us. One of the great champions of the early church was Tertullian. We've already mentioned him, and, and he will, his name will come up again next oh, yeah. week. And he was right about so many things. In fact, uh, was the first one to use the term Trinity. Uh, had a good understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not mm-hmm. as good of understanding as would come a couple of centuries later, but very orthodox in his teachings about this. But Tertullian ended up as a Montanist. It's amazing to think about. Uh, if we see what a stalwart pillar of orthodoxy that Tertullian was, and then to see that he became a follower of this heretical movement, what are we to make of that? Um, I'm thinking that for us, that is a good message of humility. When we interact with other Christians, they may be within our our normal circle. They may be outside, maybe neighbors, coworkers, whoever. When we come across these other Christians, I think we can be a little more forgiving in how we treat them because we're not all at the same point in our maturing process. And then we're all... We're not going to get there at the same time. We need to be um, graceful with uh, our interactions. We absolutely do. And we also need to be careful in our treatment of Scripture, our, our interaction with, with the Word, mm-hmm. uh, because we can easily be led astray. In fact, this stalwart of, of truth was, uh, at a later date, branded as a heretic. And what a mm-hmm. shame. Yeah. Uh, that Tertullian was branded that way. Well, this was toward the end of the of the second century, Montanism. Uh, earlier in the century, toward the middle of the second century, a far more insidious and dangerous uh, heresy arose called Marcionism after uh, a man named Marcion. Now, uh, Montanus had been a pagan priest when he converted to Christianity. Uh, Marcion... Right grew up in the church. He was the son of a bishop. Uh, There were things that he didn't like about Christianity. He certainly didn't like Judaism. He didn't like the Old Testament God. And so what was his approach to dealing with um, things that he didn't like? Well, this is a good addendum to our last segment of, of Gnosticism because he was one of the leading Gnostic segment leaders. Um, Gnosticism was not monolithic. There were different schools. There were different movements within right. it, the church at large. It, some, some, some Gnostics were ascetic, mm-hmm. uh, denying the body uh, because the body is evil, spirit is good. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and then others were libertines, and I think we've already talked about right. this. You talk a little bit while I get some water. Sure. Um, what Marcion did is he, <coughs> as he developed a, a following, he did not like the Old Testament. 
He did not like much of the New Testament. And the reason why is very influential of philosophy and the philosophy, of course, of, of Gnosticism. And um, what that said to him was that there is a good God and there is an evil demigod, semi, you know, just a demiurge type of little God. The good God is the God Father of Jesus in the New Testament. He's spirit. The bad God or the lesser God is the one who created the world because material is bad. So there we see the Gnosticism, spirit good, material bad. And so because of that, he was very anti-Semitic. He, um, removed, he did not give any credence to the Old Testament. He only used, I believe, ten letters of, of Paul in the, in the Gospel of Luke because everything else was too Jewish in flavor. So he right. really wanted just a loving God. Does that sound familiar? We only want a God of love. We don't yes. want the God of justice or wrath. So I think that very, it was very insidious then, and that same mentality lives on in our own day today. Right, so uh, Marcion, uh, uh, instead of adding to the Scriptures, he just did away. He cut them up. He cut them up, exactly. Did, what he didn't like, he threw out. Um, today, since there is such agreement on the New Testament canon, uh, people are forced to reinterpret Scripture mm. or to interpret it in a way that satisfies their scientific approach to Scripture or right. their um, very naturalist understanding of the way the universe works. So they just sort of reinterpret the supernatural uh, allegorically. And mm-hmm. we'll be talking about uh, different ways of interpreting Scripture uh, along. So, <clears throat> what? how did the church respond to Marcion? And, and this will lead into next week's segment where Sean starts talking about canon. And this is a benefit of particularly the, the Marcionism heresy and heresy in general, that it drives the church back to its authority. What do we believe? And in essence, it drives us back to Scripture. What does Scripture say? And um, when Marcion was cutting up and throwing away much of his Scripture, it drove the, the true church back to the authority of the prophets and the apostles. And Jesus said, you know, on this foundation, my church will be built, is on the doctrine of the apostles, what they teach about Christ, and that began a movement to codify what the church has already been believing, that uh, the authority of the church rests on the doctrine of the apostles. And this is one of the things I find interesting in a lot of writings of those uh, second century fathers. They refer to the rule of faith. And we think about what, what, is, what do they mean by the rule of faith? And basically it was anything that um, complements or comes along in line with the teachings of the apostles. And that was codified in what we would call the Apostles' Creed. And I know that was something that you wanted to, to mention. I'm going to make that available as a resource, too, because the Apostles' Creed was a summary version of the rule of faith. Basically, what does the church believe? Indeed, uh, the church began, as, as a response to Marcion, began to not only to centralize authority, and that's another thing we'll talk mm. about next week, the development of the imperial church or the ecclesiology that, that, that was very top-heavy. Um, 
But it also did lead to the early statements of faith and creeds. And you've mentioned the, the Apostles' Creed. Let's think about that for just a moment. Um, the Apostles' Creed first appeared somewhere in the middle of the second century. And it was a response to Marcion directly and Gnosticism as a whole. And uh, it starts off, and this is more of a modern uh, version of it. Uh, and it was added to along the way. This is not the full version that... We had in the first century, but I believe in God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. I mean, is this creator uh, of the Old Testament really different from the one that Paul speaks of in his letters? That directly goes against Gnosticism and Marcionism, doesn't it? That the the same God who created the world is also the redeemer of the world. Exactly. He's a good God Mm -hmm. and his creation is good. good. Uh, Gnosticism, Marcion thought of creation almost as a mistake. Right. Uh, but now the, the, the church is, is rallying and saying, oh no, our God, the creator of the universe, is a good God. And he, he created the universe in a good state. And uh, it, it goes on to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. Now, now, when we think of that, we think about the virgin birth being a big thing. That was no problem for Gnostics. Right. Uh, they, their big issue was, was he born? Was he really, <laughs> right. truly a human being? Or as we have talked about, Docetus said, he seemed to be. Right. He just seemed to be. He wasn't truly real. And that really spoke to against that point, too, that he was very God. He was coming from the Father. But yet he was human. He was fully human. He was conceived and birthed by, by Mary. He was, and he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, we may look at this through 21st century eyes and think that the Apostles' Creed, which, by the way, was not written by the Apostles, but it's based on the Apostles' teaching. Right. And so we may think that the point of this creed is to cast blame on Pontius Pilate, it was simply establishing uh, an event in time, space and time, in history. And Marcia has a historical true event. Yes. He descended to the dead. Uh, he descended into hell, some earlier verse. That was not in the earliest version, right. but it was added. And a number of people felt that the teaching from Ephesians is that Jesus went into hell and and, and suffered there. But a better interpretation is that he preach to the spirits in in hell, but not that he suffered. When he said it is finished, it was done. On the third day he rose again, establishing the resurrection as a true physical, and physical physical mm-hmm. historical resurrection. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead, and they expected that at any minute. As well we should. Mm-hmm. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. What does that word Catholic mean, Neil? At this point, there was only one church. There was mm-hmm. no Protestant and Catholic. There's no Eastern Western. There was Catholic meaning universal. Just means universal. Worldwide. Means we believe in this one church. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the head. And all the little local churches go to make up the universal church. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, when the apostles especially the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to particular churches, he was writing to that local church, the local church. as a yep. body of Christ. So we see the local church are local expressions of the, the fuller body 
right. in the world. So when you say church, are you speaking of the local church or the universal church? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Hallelujah. That's what Amen. we believe today. And that's what uh, our uh, forefathers, the, the, the men and women of faith in the early years, hammered some of these truths out and put them in, in ways that responded directly to these heresies. And those are good points of summary for essential doctrine coming from the apostles. And uh, unfortunately, there are many that, uh, that would go against it even today. But I'm, I'm glad we can look back to this creed and see biblical truth. Well, next week we will talk about the rise of the church leadership uh, and the bishops and also uh, more uh, creeds and responses to heresies in the early church. That will inform the ways that we look at truth today and combat heresies.